with us. Father, one more time this afternoon, we ask for your presence, for your Holy Spirit, and for your wisdom as we try to understand how to be saved. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. All right, now this afternoon, the last meeting will be sanctification, and we'll do exactly what we did with sanctification. We will look first at what it is, and then certain issues that have come up regarding it in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You will notice that I have put the same two categories for sanctification as I did for justification, and this is not understood clearly, I don't think, that just as justification has a legal aspect and an experiential aspect, sanctification also has a legal aspect and an experiential aspect. Usually it is said, justification is legal and sanctification is experiential. That's usually the dividing line of the Christian world, which puts salvation on a legal basis and growing up on an experiential basis. I am convinced that both categories apply to justification and sanctification. And we'll just take a look. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. These are some statements that are not too often understood as we discuss this subject. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. Paul here is talking about the change that has taken place between the sinning life and the saved life. And in verse 11, he says, Such were some of you. And the category is very bad in the previous two verses. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Please notice that the same tense in Greek and English is used for washed and sanctified and justified. So if you are justified, you are sanctified and you are washed. Done deal. It's finished. You have been justified and you have been sanctified and you have been washed. Here it is not talking about the growing experience. It is talking about the completed experience. So if justification is done then sanctification in some sense is done. Now, how can sanctification be done? That's done in the original meaning of the word, the basic meaning of the word in the Bible. Sanctification, if you go to the Old Testament, it becomes very clear. What did they do when they set up the temple, the, the tabernacle, and they put together all of the, the, the furniture and the uh, equipment and the lavers and the bowls and all of that? They sanctified them. What did that mean? They set them apart for a holy use. That's the basic meaning of sanctification. To set apart for holy use. Have we all been set apart for a holy use when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior? Isn't that the point of salvation? We have been set apart. Have you noticed that Paul can write to the people in Corinth who were not doing very well to the saints in Corinth? meaning to the sanctified ones, to the holy ones. They had been set apart. So the basic meaning of the word is a legal word, set apart for holy use. Just as the articles in the sanctuary were set apart for holy use, so the Christian is set apart for holy use when he or she is justified. And that's the legal meaning of sanctification, and that's why Paul can say, ye are sanctified. 
ye are sanctified. Acts chapter 26, verse 18. to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Notice how it puts together forgiveness of sins and inheritance which belong under justification and are sanctified by faith. They are sanctified. They are set apart for a holy use. They are part of the family of God. They are adopted, and they are set apart as holy ones, ones God designates as holy. That's the legal meaning of the word sanctification, and that happens at the moment of justification. You see, let's be very clear on this point. We separate justification and sanctification to describe how God deals with a person to change him from a sinner into a saved person. And so we say one part is forgiveness and one part is holiness. But you know what? Those words are just words. It is one process and it happens at one time. The act of justification is never separated from the act of sanctification. And they are both acts of God's grace. And we do something to receive both of them. It is one process put into two categories. Unfortunately, we have made justification the saving act and sanctification the result of a saving act, which gets all kinds of monkey wrenches into the system of salvation. All right. So that is the legal aspect of sanctification, which is not often thought of by Christians. Now, the other one is easier to understand, the experiential aspect. This is what is most often understood by Christians. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 3. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Sanctification is abounding more and more. It is growing. It is experiencing the reality of what we began at our justification, abounding more and more. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Notice, changed from one point of glory to another point of glory, higher and higher into the image of God. The changing from one to another is the experiential growing part of sanctification, and that is fairly clearly understood. A few comments from Ellen White made very clear on this point. Christ's Object Lesson 65, At every stage of development our life may be perfect, yet if God's purpose for us is fulfilled, there will be continual advancement. The growing up. Each that little plant is perfect at the very beginning. It is still perfect when it is growing, but if it stops growing it becomes imperfect and dies. The growing is necessary. 
Uh, our high calling, page 214. Sanctification is a state of holiness without and within, being holy and without reserve the Lord's, not in form but in truth. Every impurity of thought, every lustful passion separates the soul from God, for Christ can never put his robe of righteousness upon a sinner to hide his deformity. So it is giving up these thoughts and these passions which separate us from God and surrendering them into his control. Testimony, I'm sorry, yeah, Testimonies, volume 4, page 299. The problem spot, the area where you have to do your thinking and your study is in the experiential aspect of justification. Most Christians deny that, say that's not part of justification. You have to work on that. Make sure that you understand that that is a true, legitimate part of justification. And in sanctification, the odd part is the legal aspect of sanctification that you are legally set apart for a holy use while you are growing from one point of maturity to another point of maturity. So these are both necessary aspects of sanctification, legal and experiential. Now, what are some of the issues that seem to pop up here and there? First of all, the area of effort. The claim is commonly made that no effort, human effort, is involved in justification. That's why justification is what saves us. But since much human effort is involved in sanctification, that cannot be what saves us because human effort is works and cannot save. Well, let's look at that just a little bit. When you come to Jesus Christ, is it a simple, easy matter to say, I'm going to throw out all those records that I know are not right. They don't interest me anymore. I'm going to stop reading the books that are dragging me down. I'm going to stop the partying that I've been used to for 30 years now. I'm going to stop the drinking and the smoking. I don't care about those things anymore. Are those easy, simple things to do? Or are they some of the hardest things in the world to say, I will leave all of that behind because I know that Jesus Christ will supply something better in its place. But, wow, if I leave all that, will my life have any meaning? Is there any fun in life? Will life be a deadly bore from this point on? Because I've got nothing fun to do for the rest of my life. What is the hardest thing to do? Isn't it to surrender a way of life that we have been learning and practicing for 5, 10, 20, 30 years and say, I surrender it all to you because I am so sick of what it is doing to me and my friends around me, and so I'm just going to give it up to you. It's going to, cut, it's going to feel like cutting, out my right, cutting off my right hand or plucking out my eye. Isn't that what Jesus said? Ellen White says, we are going to feel like we go through life maimed or crippled if we have to give up this darling sin that we've been doing all of our lives. More precious than life itself. How can I live if I don't have this? To give that up, my friends, is going to require the greatest human effort that you have ever experienced in your life. Because God won't make that choice for you. He will give you the power to carry out your choice. But he will not make the choice. And it requires every bit of human energy and will and decision and fight in you that you've got to say, I set, I set it aside. I throw it away. I burn the bridges. Oh, we want the bridges, don't we? Just in case. Just in case we want to go back one time. 
to burn all the bridges and say, Lord, burn them all. I never want to go back into that again. I don't know how I'll ever live, but Lord, I'll just trust you to do something for my, for that, that's better in my life. I'm going to say that that requires more effort than anything you will ever do in the rest of your Christian experience. Once you've done that, Christian living is really pretty easy. How about keeping the Sabbath? When you've surrendered your life to the Lord, when you've surrendered all of these selfish things in your life and saying, you can have them all and I don't want them, is it really a huge struggle to say, boy, I've got to keep this Sabbath now. How am I going to do that? That's a lot of work to keep the Sabbath. Or will it be a joy and a pleasure once you've set aside all the other garbage and you've let the Lord come into your life completely? I'm going to suggest that the issues of Sabbath keeping and tithe paying and our diet change and all those other things, yes, they require some effort, but the effort will be minuscule compared to the effort to leave aside the whole way of life that led you up to this point. Human effort. I'm saying it takes a lot more human effort to be justified than it does to be sanctified when you boil it right down. A lot more human fight, a lot more human grit, a lot more human determination to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And I completely reject the idea that human effort is necessary only in sanctification and no human effort is involved in justification at all. I say the greatest human effort is involved in justification as a condition of salvation, not as a cause of salvation, but as a necessary condition I will give this to you, Lord. It is so precious to me that I don't know how I can ever do it, but I will give it to you and trust you to provide something better somehow, some way. Human effort. Don't disparage it. Just don't make it your way of achieving salvation. All that human effort of setting aside all these things will not earn you salvation. It will just put you in the place where God can save you. God will do the saving. God will do the changing. God will do the transforming in your mind. God will change your hates into loves and your loves into hates. God will do that. You won't do that. You will still love that back there, but you will hate it at the same time. It will be a love-hate relationship until God changes the wiring in your brain and you really hate it for sure. <laughs> so, yes, human effort is a necessary condition of salvation, but never a cause of salvation, never something that will save you. Ernest Steed, dead now, for a long time part of the general conference in various ways, said something very nice. He said, It is becoming more popular when presenting the justifying work of grace to downplay obedience and the specificity of God's commands. Have you noticed that? God's grace, God's justifying grace. Well, let's not talk so much about what we eat. Let's not talk so much about the books we read. That's legalism. We get into standards. and Ah, oh, that's not so good. When grace is seen only as a justifying experience with God, there is the, test, the tendency not only to ignore but to reject the necessity of grace for sanctified living. In other words, if we restrict grace to justification, we're going to say, well, maybe it's not very necessary or it doesn't work so well in sanctification. Surely, God's grace is abundant. It is a deception of Satan to limit grace when God is willing to provide us both the title and fitness through grace for a place in his glorious kingdom. Let's have all of grace, not just half of grace. Let's have it all. See what God can do. It's all grace. It is all grace.
Now, I said we'd pick up exactly where we left off with the evangelical version of how this all works. Now, I'm going to restate that so it's very clear. And I'm going to read from an evangelical scholar at Fuller Theological Seminary describing the relationship between faith and obedience. He says, The nature of obedience is very important to evangelical theology. If obedience to commandments is taken as a sign of justifying faith, producing sanctification, then it smacks of legalism. In other words, if obedience to the Sabbath or anything is taken as a sign of faith, if you have faith, this is a sign that you have faith. If that's what you believe, that's legalism, he says. He says, there are those who see obedience to rules and regulations as com and commandments as necessary to salvation. Well, I've just spent a, an hour saying they are necessary to salvation. He says, and then there are those who see obedience to Christ as a sign of discipleship and as a means of following him as a contemporary Savior and Lord. Obedience to Christ is a commitment to a life of discipleship. So now he's separated. Notice carefully. He said, some see obedience as necessary to salvation. Others, evangelicals, see obedience as a sign of discipleship, not of salvation, but of discipleship. What does he mean by that? Well, you're not going to have a very happy Christian life if you're always disobedient to God. You'll be frustrated. You'll be doing things that you know aren't quite right. You're still saved, but you just... No, they're not right. And your conscience is nagging you and you'll be kind of unhappy and you'll be far happier if you'll be obedient. Discipleship is a good thing. And then when you're witnessing to other people and you're saying we should be honest in all our deeds and they know that you're cheating on your income tax, that's not a very good witness to people. And so the only way you can really witness effectively to people is if you are living an obedient life, carrying out your, your principles in your life. And so that's being a good disciple. See? So what he is saying is obedience is about discipleship. Having a nice experience, feeling good about your experience, and witnessing effectively to others. But obedience has nothing to do with salvation. That's what he's saying. It is not about salvation. It's about living a reasonably happy life, and it's about witnessing to others. But obedience is not a sign of salvation. It's not a sign of justification. If we say it's necessary for salvation, we are legalists. That's the evangelical view. They place obedience as good, as fruitful, but not necessary to be saved. That's why they can say David was saved while disobeying God. And that is what a true evangelical will say. And so obedience is a sign of discipleship not necessary to salvation. So again, remembering, Adventist grace says, biblical grace says, obedience is a sign of justification and is necessary to salvation. Evangelical grace says it is not either one of those things. So that is, again, the difference between the two. Um, Dale Ratzlaff, ever heard of him? who has probably carried on the focus of Desmond Ford more actively than any other within the Adventist church of recent years. Here is what he said on one occasion in his book. Justification by faith is often seen as only... Now, he's talking about us, you and I, especially me, talking about this issue. Justification by faith is often seen as only one half of the process of salvation. The other half is sanctification, and that is exactly my position. Justification is half of the process. Sanctification is the other half of the process. 
often their concept, my concept of the gospel, includes both. In this way, human works, even if these works are works of faith, are included in sanctification, which is also included in the basis of salvation. We conclude, therefore, that only the evangelical Adventists clearly understand justification by faith. And what does the evangelical believe? Justification, legal, declared only, not new birth, not experiential, not sanctification. So there he's making a very clear distinction between those who believe that justification and sanctification are both causes of salvation and the evangelicals who believe that only justification causes salvation. So there again you have the distinction made by one who believes in the evangelical gospel. Now we're going to come to the real heart of this uh, presentation today. Is sanctification a fruit of salvation or a cause of salvation? Which is it? Fruit or cause? Here is um, someone writing from Palm Springs to the review. Righteousness by faith is the righteousness by which we stand justified and accepted of God. Once sanctification is included, it means we are justified and accepted partly by Christ's imputed righteousness for us and partly by imparted righteousness wrought in us by the Holy Spirit, a subtle form of righteousness by works which is pure counsel of Trent. Council of Trent is the Catholic response to the Protestant Reformation of Luther. And they restated their position on salvation to refute Luther's position. So what he is saying here is that you include sanctification as a cause of salvation, both by imputed and imparted righteousness. That's righteousness by works, and that's Catholicism. And I'm going to caution you at this point. If you do believe that what I'm telling you this afternoon is correct, if it's biblically correct, you will be labeled as Catholic by Seventh-day Adventists. Why do I say that? Because I have. <laughs> I know by personal experience what this is. My theology, the theology I've been expressing to you all last night and today, has been labeled as Catholic because I place sanctification as a cause of salvation not as a result of salvation. These terms seem so innocuous, so, you know, so irrelevant. But when you unpack the terms as to what they mean, we are distinguishing between two different ways of salvation, whether you believe that sanctification is a cause or a fruit, a result of being saved. Is it necessary for salvation or is this simply an add-on to salvation? Is it the engine pulling the train or is it the caboose at the end of the train? Which is it? Sanctification. That's at stake. The evangelicals say it's the caboose. I understand it to be part of the engine of justification that is pulling the train to salvation. All right, let's see what else we can come across. This is within Adventism right now. This is from a book that has had some popularity in recent years. It is called, the, book is, the book's name is Beyond Belief. Came across that book anywhere recently? Probably did. Written by uh, someone who has been uh, giving seminars like mine for a number of years now. His name is Jack Sequera. Listen carefully. 
the objective gospel, the imputed righteousness of Christ, and he means by that justification, is what qualifies us for heaven, both now and in the judgment. The subjective gospel, the imparted righteousness of Christ, does not contribute to our qualification for heaven. It gives evidence of the reality of Christ's imputed righteousness in the life. States it another way. It, this imparted righteousness of Christ, does not contribute in the slightest way to our qualification for heaven. Not in the slightest way. All of this that we've been talking about has no bearing on whether or not we are qualified for eternal life and for heaven. Has no bearing on that at all. He says it again. The subjective work of imparted righteousness does not contribute in the slightest way to our qualification for heaven. So he says it several times to make the point as clear as he possibly can. So now we're going to ask the question. Does the Bible and the spirit of prophecy teach that sanctification is a necessary qualification for heaven? And so we want to find out what God says. Turn to 2 Thessalonians with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks all the way to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. How has God chosen us to be saved? Never, no, nowhere in this passage is he talking about justification. Nowhere is he talking about legal. Nowhere is he talking about imputed. It simply says God has chosen you to salvation through this is the method to get to salvation, sanctification of the Spirit. And by the way, there's one more little thing here. Those in the evangelical understanding of salvation say that, sal that justification comes through Jesus Christ and sanctification comes through the Holy Spirit. You are not saved by the Holy Spirit. You are not saved by the new birth. You are saved by believing in Christ's death on the cross. The good news is Christ doing and dying on the cross. And you believe in that and you're saved. The Holy Spirit has no part in your saving work. It is only a result of your saving work when he enters the picture. But is that what this says again? He has called, chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. That's the method of receiving salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2. Peter is talking about the elect, the saved, the righteous ones. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. How are you elect? Nothing about justification here. You are elect through sanctification of the Spirit. And here I want to stress as strongly as I can that from all the evidence I have found, Sanctification is not half me and half God. It is all God, just as justification is all God. Do I have some role to play in it? Absolutely. I have to believe to be justified. I have to surrender. I have to repent. I have to confess. None of those are will save me. 
God will justify me 100% His work if I put myself in the place where I can be justified. Sanctification, whether it's Sabbath-keeping or tithe-paying or anything we do, all are done by the power of the Holy Spirit. They are not done by our efforts with a little contribution from God. Yes, I have to make a decision to keep the Sabbath. Yes, I have to decide about my diet. But none of them I can keep, as I think I've said before. I can keep Saturday very well by my own efforts. But I cannot keep one Sabbath day unless the Holy Spirit has controlled and, and dominated my experience. Sabbath-keeping... Fourth commandment obedience is a gift of God, just as justification is a gift of God. But anyway, back here, sanctification is the way of election. Sanctification is salvation. A few statements from the Spirit of Prophecy. Steps to Christ 63. We read this last night. Our only ground of hope is in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That's justification and in that which is wrought by His Spirit working in and through us. Only ground of hope. Legal and experiential, both working together. Now listen to this. Through faith in my name, He will impart to you, He will impart to you the sanctification and holiness which will fit you for His work in a world of sin and qualify you for an immortal inheritance in His kingdom. Did you catch that? First of all, sanctification is a gift from God. He imparts it. You don't work it up. He gives it. And then, by His work, He qualifies you for an immortal inheritance in His kingdom. What did I just read? Sanctification does not qualify us in any way for salvation. And yet, right here is the opposite. That's Signs of the Times, June 18, 1896. And listen to this. Selected Messages, Volume 1, 395. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, the sanctification of the truth, the believer becomes fitted for the courts of heaven. Now there, the word fitted is used. For Christ works within us, and His righteousness is upon us. Without this, without what? Sanctification. No soul will be entitled to heaven. We would not enjoy heaven unless qualified for its holy atmosphere by the influence of the Spirit and the righteousness of Christ. And I'm going to say, somewhere, somehow, these statements didn't seem to be read when the statement was said, sanctification does not qualify us in any way for heaven. These are exactly the opposite. Sanctification qualifies us for eternal life. Without it, we're not there. It is a necessary part of salvation, a qualification for eternal life. When you're growing fruit on a tree, let's say the tree produces good fruit, mostly. But a few of the, of the apples on that tree are kind of shriveled up. They just, ugh, you can't eat that. Do you cut down the whole tree because five apples are shriveled up on the tree? No, you don't. You just say, oh, that's kind of an aberration on the tree. Maybe I'll cut off that branch and maybe that'll be the solution to the problem. Or maybe I'll just ignore it. Uh, so um, you don't destroy a tree, a fruit tree, because some fruit on the tree isn't so good. But what if 
The sap that is flowing up through the tree runs into mold and fungus on the way up. And it becomes all distorted and it isn't producing, the, it isn't carrying the life-giving materials from the roots to the branches of the tree so that the fruit is, is just not appearing on the tree at all. You've got an empty tree. What did Jesus say on that indication when that fig tree didn't bear fruit? Cut it down. It cumbers the ground. So you see, you make a distinction in a fruit tree between the lifeblood flowing up through the tree which makes it bear fruit and some fruit which doesn't turn out as well as the other fruit. Fruit isn't the major thing, is it? Fruit is subsidiary to the tree itself. The tree may be a good tree producing 90% good fruit and 10% bad fruit. What if sanctification is only a fruit of salvation and not a cause or necessary to salvation? Well, if you've got some little uh, shriveled up uh, habits in your life, if perhaps you're still uh, too much involved in um, overeating or eating the wrong foods or uh, watching the wrong movies or uh, reading the wrong books or wearing the wrong clothes and you know it's wrong and you simply say, well, those are fruits of salvation. They don't affect my salvation. They aren't necessary for salvation. They are just some things which uh, uh, we'll just cut off that branch or, or we'll ignore it and it'll be all right because the tree is still sound. I'm saved. Everything is good, justified. I am righteous. Fruit is a subsidiary to the tree. And if the tree of salvation is justification alone, then the sanctifying fruits on the tree can be taken or left as they are good or bad. And you don't worry about certain habits in your life. You don't worry about some things which aren't quite like they should be. That's the difference between fruit and cause. I am suggesting to you that sanctification is not just about fruits. It's about the lifeblood flowing through the tree. It is about whether the sap is running freely, whether it is growing into maturity. Are we having a difficulty with our air conditioning? Is that what we're <laughs> discussing right now? <laughs> Maybe we wiggle the thing a little more and it might come on. couple of comments by Ellen White on this point. Um, we are justified by faith, but judged by the character of our works. Isn't that interesting? We're justified by faith, but judged in the judgment by our, what our works are like. The destiny of the worker is determined by the faithful improvement or by the lack of improvement of his talents. It will be an awful thing to be found wanting when the book of accounts is opened in that great day. So sanctification, which has a lot to do with good works, is how we'll be judged. That's uh, Review and Herald, April 21, 1896. So there we have an interesting kind of uh, emphasis on the works aspect here. Another one by Ellen White, and then we'll get into something else on this point. This one from... Selected Messages, Volume 3, pages 190 and onward. It is the fragrance of the merit of Christ that makes our good works acceptable to God. So what makes our good works, our Sabbath keeping, our tithe paying? The fragrance of the merit of Christ. And it is grace that enables us to do the works for which he rewards us. Our works could not have been performed in the strength of our own sinful natures. 
So good works, human works can be performed in your own nature, and they are like filthy rags. But good works, works of faith, can only be performed by the Holy Spirit as we allow Him to come into our lives and rewire some brain circuits so that we enjoy what God enjoys and hate what God hates. And so there I think we have another example of what we're talking about right here. Strange little statement I came across from uh, a column in the review again. We are not redeemed by virtue of spiritual regeneration. Isn't that an interesting sentence? We are not redeemed by virtue of spiritual regeneration. There is no such category as salvation by character. Well, in the book of Titus, which we already read today, chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, it says that justification must be preceded by renewing and regeneration. Yes, we are redeemed by virtue of spiritual regeneration. That's a biblical concept. And salvation by character, what is going to be judged in the judgment? Character. Another person said, salvation by faith, apart from the works of the law, even those good works done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So works of the law and works of the Holy Spirit are all lumped together in one category. No, my friends, no. Ellen White. Who will have a right to enter heaven? They are those who are working to attain such a position that they will have a moral fitness to stand around the great white throne in their white robes of character. There is a great work to be done in order to obtain a fitness of character for the kingdom of God. Review and Herald, January 4, 1887. Does character have something to do about salvation? Strange statements are being made by those that we would expect to be far more advanced in, our under, in their understanding of salvation and all that pertains to it. In the book that we already referred to, uh, Beyond Belief, there is an interesting phrase. In the carnal believer who is born of the Spirit but is still walking after the flesh, the mind may desire to do God's will but the body remains subject to the law of sin. Unaided by the Holy Spirit, the mind cannot overcome the law of sin in our members. Such a life is therefore also marred by sin. Did you notice the first phrase? In the carnal believer. When Elder Joe Cruz was alive, he wrote a book called Square Circles. And I think that's what a carnal believer is, a square circle. How do you have that? You can't have a square and a circle at the same time. Can you be carnal and a believer, born of the Spirit, and walking after the flesh at the same time? Didn't Jesus say you cannot serve two masters, God and mammon? And yet here we have a carnal believer, born of the Spirit, but walking after the flesh, where the mind wants to do God's will, but the body remains subject to the law of sin, unaided by the Holy Spirit. Can you be born of the Holy Spirit while unaided by the Holy Spirit? There are just some major word contradictions here that just seem like impossible to, uh, to put together. And by the way, where this all comes down and out of is the book, is the chapter in Romans 7. The good that I would, I do not, and that which I not, would not, that I do. Uh, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? 
meaning that my old flesh is still working within me. It leads me to be carnal. I can't help it. With my mind, I want to do the right thing, but my flesh is still going down this road of carnality. And that is seen as the way of Christianity. That's where this is all coming out of. A false view of Revelation of Romans 7. Again, phrasing from this book. Carnal Christians who have experienced the new birth, but who are still dominated by the life of the flesh. That's just not possible, my friends. It's no more possible than a square circle is possible. Carnal Christians who have experienced the new birth, but are still dominated by the life of the flesh. This is from the book uh, Beyond Belief by Jack Sequera on pages 148 and 150. Now, my friends, we are really going to move into deep waters on this point. First of all, and I'll give you the, the references and the places I'm getting this from. This is from, and I read earlier from Elder Falkenberg when he was president of the General Conference. This is in his book, Called in Christ. We obtain salvation through agreeing to enter a relationship of trust in Christ and occasional good deeds and misdeeds neither make nor break that relationship. In his book, We Still Believe, our, our assurance of salvation is based on God's grace by faith, not on our behavior or character development. Each sin we may commit does not turn off salvation in our lives. So when we sin, we do not lose our salvation. We remain right with him. Well, I go back to Desmond Ford, 1976. That which he did for us, which brings complete acceptance with God for every believer, and the work he does in us, which has nothing to do with our acceptance by God. Have you seen some similarities here between all the things I have read and what Desmond Ford was teaching in the years 1976 through 1981? Same words, same phrasing, exactly the same. Well, now let's get more serious. This author is the most well-known author in the Seventh-day Adventist Church on the subject of righteousness by faith. He has written more books on this subject, has received more praise on how to explain salvation than any other Seventh-day Adventist. His name is Morris Venden. Is it possible to sin and to know you are sinning and keep on doing what you're doing wrong and still be a Christian? That's the question. Can you keep on sinning and still be a Christian? in a right relationship with Christ in salvation. Then he talks about the disciples of Christ, and here is what he says about them. The disciples continued their discussion along the road to Jerusalem, taking care of their unfinished business. But they knew what they were doing was wrong because they lagged behind Jesus. In fact, by the time Jesus reached the city limits, his disciples were so far behind that he couldn't even hear what they were saying. Now, that's a little bit of sanctified imagination, but I think he was right. I don't think those disciples wanted Jesus in on that conversation. What do you think? Who's the best? I'm better than you are. You don't deserve this place. I have more qualifications than you do. And they knew what Jesus said. He was greatest among you. Take the lowest place. They knew good and well. They didn't want Jesus in on that at all. So the sin of which the disciples were guilty was not only sin, it was a bad sin. And they knew it was wrong. And they knew what they were doing. But they kept right on doing it. 
That qualifies in my definition as known sin, continuing sin, habitual sin, cherished sin, persistent sin. On the basis of this Bible story, we can conclude that it is possible to have a relationship with God going on and to have a known sin going on in your life at the same time. The disciples had a relationship with God going on and a known sin going on at the same time. There's the proof. Since the disciples were walking with Jesus Christ, they hadn't rejected Jesus Christ. They were in the saving relationship to Him all the while they were arguing about who was the greatest. What does the evangelical gospel say is the way of salvation? Believe in Jesus Christ. Be legally justified. Accept Him as your Savior. And then let the work of sanctification gradually grow. If it's got wormy apples, well, it's just a result anyway. It's just a fruit. Don't worry about it. It's okay as long as you believe in Jesus Christ. Now, when you reject Jesus Christ and walk the other way, then you can be lost. The disciples obviously weren't walking the other way. They were following Jesus Christ. And so they had a wormy apple right now. They were arguing about who, was, who would be the greatest. That's okay they did not lose their salvation. Well, what was the sin that the disciples were guilty of in one word? Pride. I'm better than you are. What was the sin of which Lucifer was guilty of in one word? Pride. Lucifer was cast out of heaven for continuing in pride continuing in pride. The disciples, did you read uh, any evidence in the uh, story of them walking along the road as they continued? And this didn't happen just once, folks. This happened a fair amount, I'm sure. That they were repentant immediately, that they said, Lord, we're so sorry we talked about this subject. Uh, we won't bring it up again. Did we come across anything like that in the Gospels? Didn't it take one of the most awesome acts that Jesus ever did in his life to take off his garment and get down and wash their dirty feet before they finally got the message? And even then it wasn't totally clear, but they began to get the, got, get the message. They weren't repenting as they were arguing. It took a while later before they ever repented of that sin. And even on one occasion, they got one of their mothers to come in and do some interceding and uh, pleading that my sons are the ones that are qualified. This was a plotting business. They weren't repenting. They were plotting. They were guilty of continuing pride. What do you think? What kind of case would Lucifer, Satan now, have against the character and the government of God if he could say, in the face of a watching universe, the jury now, I was cast out of heaven, never more to find my place in heaven for the sin of pride. And you're taking these disciples into heaven while participating in the very same sin for which I was cast out. And they haven't repented yet. What if the earth would swallow them up right at that moment? An earthquake, destruction, a tower falling on them, like in the tower of, that Jesus talked about. And they'd be gone. And you'd take them to heaven because they, you had forgiven them. You cast me out of heaven and you take them to heaven and neither one of us have repented of our pride. What do you think the case would be in the watching universe? I believe that Satan would win his case, don't you? If God would deal that way with those who are sinning, taking a favorite group into heaven while participating in the very same sin for which a third of the angels were cast out. 
I think that would devastate God and his government and his way of life. So I don't believe that these disciples were really following Jesus. Oh, yeah, they were walking. But I don't believe they were following Jesus while they were arguing about who was the greatest. And I think that's why Jesus had to say to Peter on one occasion, when you're converted, then you can help your brothers. Peter had been arguing too. And Peter needed conversion, experiential justification, experiential sanctification. So that is one way of phrasing it. Now going back to the other author in uh, Beyond Belief. Here is the way he says it. There is a world of difference between sinning under the law and sinning under grace. You know how I would see that, and I think there is a world of difference between sinning under the law before you come to Christ and sinning under grace after you've been saved by Jesus Christ. I'd say the sin of sinning after Christ is much worse than the sin of sinning before you knew Christ. Seems to me it's much greater when you've received the gift of salvation and go out and throw it away than if you didn't know it was there before. Well, that isn't quite the way he says it. The world of difference is this. Stumbling under grace, falling into sin, does not deprive us of justification, neither does it bring condemnation. Before you came to Christ, you were lost because of your sins. But after grace, when you fall into sin, you don't lose your justification. It still covers you. And it does not bring condemnation to you. You are not condemned once you've come to Christ. You are not deprived of justification. So the disciples, yes, they were still saved while arguing about who would be the greatest. Here's another one, again, from the same author that, um, well, maybe I've already read this one. This is the one I've read on David, so I'll skip that one. David would have been lost only by losing his faith-trust relationship, not by committing adultery. Here's an interesting one. There are three words for sin, iniquity, transgression, and missing the mark. Three types of sin. The missing the mark sin, this type of sin won't cause us to be lost because our conscious choice is still to follow the Lord. We just fall short of the Lord's ideal. So if you're committing iniquity, you're lost. If you're committing transgression, you're lost. If you're just missing the mark, you want to serve the Lord. Romans 7, you just fall short a little bit and it won't cause you to be lost. Uh, this is an interesting email. This is not an authority at all. This is just something I came across in an email that someone was trying to uh, argue his point, that there are certain kinds of sin that would not cause you to be lost. So there, this is just an interesting little thing I came across. Well, that if that's the case, I want to know about the missing the mark sins so I can still indulge them. I want to find out which category of sins my sins fall into. Are they iniquities, are they transgressions, or just missing the mark? My friends, I think missing the mark is just as serious as any other kind of sin because God has given us the mark and the ability to live up to that mark by His Holy Spirit. And if we miss it, it's serious sin. Now here is one that, uh, again, is um, just an email kind of discussion on this point. Here's an interesting one. Some sins in Hebrew are called chata'ah. They cannot be overcome. They are not counted against us. And they have nothing to do with our fitness or unfitness for heaven. So now this is Hebrew. and the other, it was in the Greek. The chata'ah sins in Hebrew are not counted against us. And so they don't have anything to do about whether we're right or wrong. And someone went to the pain of looking up that word in the Old Testament and finding out what kinds of sins are covered by that word in Hebrew. Potiphar's wife luring Joseph. 
the selling of Joseph into slavery by his brothers, idolatry, the rebellion of Korah against Moses, Eli's son's rebellion against the Lord, the planned murder of David by Saul, the multiple sins into which Jeroboam led Israel, the sins of Manasseh, are all chata'ah sins. But they're not counted against us, you see. Oh, we're doing interesting little things these days with the Hebrew and the Greek words, trying to see which Hebrew and Greek words will cause us to be lost and which will allow us to be saved in our sins. I'm going to suggest to you that the search for an escape route through the Hebrew or Greek words for sins is a dead-end street. You will not achieve any better understanding of what sin is by categorizing sins through these different names in the Greek and Hebrew languages. That, I think, is a dead-end street. Another one, this time from the editor of The Signs of the Times, Marvin Moore. We don't lose our relationship with him by committing sin, but by changing gods. How do you lose your relationship with him? Taking Satan as your Lord rejecting Jesus Christ. We don't lose our relationship with him by committing sin, but by changing God's. And in another place, he put it this way. The idea that Christians break their relationship with Jesus every time they sin is actually a subtle form of righteousness by works. It makes obedience rather than faith a condition of our acceptance by God. Now, that's a very important point right here. Do we lose our relationship with Jesus Christ when we sin? That's a major issue in all of this that we're talking about. Before I address that directly, though, I want to share with you some things that uh, I have found in the spirit of prophecy on this point and uh, that are worth our careful attention. This one from Testimonies, Volume 4, page 623. Every transgression brings the soul into condemnation and provokes the divine displeasure. Every transgression brings the soul into condemnation. We just read that some sins after grace don't bring us into condemnation. Um, My Life Today, page 250. No one who truly loves and fears God will continue to transgress the law in any particular. Whatever his profession may be, he is not justified, which means pardoned. And again, I've just read that stumbling under grace, falling into sin, we do not lose our justification. When we transgress God's law, whatever our profession may be, we are not justified. The clearest of them all. The willful commission of a known sin. That's the key word, known sin. doesn't matter what the sin is. Known unto us. The willful commission of a known sin silences the witnessing voice of the Spirit and separates the soul from God. Whatever may be the ecstasies of religious feeling, we may come to church and praise the Lord for justification and for the mercy of God and the unconditional love of God. Jesus cannot abide in the heart that disregards the divine law. We cannot for one moment separate ourselves from Christ with safety. Messages to young people 114 and 115. And I suggest that those disciples were separating themselves from Jesus Christ as they walked down the road arguing about who was, who was the greatest. Jesus cannot abide in the heart that disregards the divine law. A couple of others worth our attention. Wrong feelings have been cherished. Key word, cherished. 
There have been pride, self-sufficiency, impatience, and murmurings. All these separate us from God. Key word there, my friends, separate. God's amazing grace, 139. Any sin in them separates them from God. Testimonies 5, 661. I have two pages of statements here. I'm not going to read them all. Every impurity of thought, every lustful passion separates the soul from God. For Christ can never put his robe of righteousness upon a sinner to hide his deformity. Our high calling, page 214. Well may the question be asked with earnest, anxious heart. Is envy cherished? Is jealousy permitted to find a place in my heart? If so, Christ is not there. Very plain. Very clear. Impossible to misunderstand. In order for man to retain justification, there must be continual obedience. Selected Messages, Volume 1, 366. And then the, the biggest one. Christ's life declares that humanity combined with divinity does not commit sin. Humanity combined with divinity does not commit sin. Ministry of Healing, 180. Well, then what commits sin? Humanity separated from divinity. Humanity separated from the Holy Spirit. Humanity separated from Jesus Christ. That is the only way sin can be committed. The only way those disciples could go arguing down the road about who was the greatest was if they had in their hearts backed off from Christ. As the author said, they backed off from Christ so they could have their own sinful conversation. They were not in harmony with Him. They were separated from Him by their hearts. Just as Lucifer separated him from the, himself from God. Separation, my friends, is a serious business. And it will cause the loss of our salvation. You see, as a very uh, astute professor of mine once told me, it is very simple. Christ in, sin out. Sin in, Christ out. How could it be otherwise? How can Christ and sin be dwelling in my life at the same time? I know this is wrong, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. Let's take David right now. I know I shouldn't do it, but she's so beautiful. I'm the king. I deserve her. And off he goes. How can that be Christ living in his heart at the same time? How can that have, there be a relationship of trust, faith, and obedience while those thoughts are controlling me? See, there's only one way we can sin. There's only one way possible to sin. Holy Spirit, would you just step aside over there for a moment? I'm going to go over here and do something here, which I know you aren't going to participate with me in. Uh, I just hope you're there when I get back. That's the only way we can sin, is walking away from the Holy Spirit's control, because the Holy Spirit will not sin in our lives. Now, which brings us back to that question. Do we lose our relationship with Christ every time we sin? You know what? I think it depends more on what happens when we slip and fall. I say, you know, that's an odd thing to say, but let's, let's work on that just a little bit. When we slip and fall, when words come out of our mouth that are not God's words, when they are impetuous words, they're hurtful words, when they're angry words, that is the spirit of Satan. That's not the spirit of Jesus Christ, okay? Someone has offended us. Someone has mis maligned us. Someone has said something that was totally improper for them to say. And we rise up in righteous indignation. Oh, yes. And we defend our egos and we say, you can't talk to me that way. You have no right to say that about me. Here is what I think about you. Right? 
And we call it righteous indignation. Oh, yes. And when those words come out of our mouth, we have two options immediately, right then. Because we know our conscience has just said to us, wow, that, that wasn't the way a Christian should talk. Our conscience, just they're nagging us just that little bit. Praise God for a nagging conscience. And our conscience kind of... Two points now. Human pride. Human pride and human ego. That's the biggest problem we've got. Selfishness. And here's the human way of settling that problem. You see, we've got a hand linked into the hand of Jesus Christ. That comes in justification and sanctification. And we take that hand and we clench it behind our backs. And we say something like, when she says she's sorry, well, then I'll say I'm sorry. But I'm going to wait for her to admit that she was in the wrong. And I'm going to just say more hurtful words until she gets the point. See? Isn't that the human way? Defend your rights. Don't let anybody say nasty things about you. Don't turn the other cheek. You know that's the hardest commandment Jesus ever made? The others are pretty easy. Sell all your goods and give to the poor. That's an easy one compared to turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. When someone maligns, disparages you, criticizes you, does something wrong to you, well, I'm just going to wait till they get the point, and I'm not going to talk to them anymore. And our hands are solidly clenched behind our back. We are separated from God, my friends. There is no way we're walking with Jesus Christ. There is no way the Holy Spirit is dwelling, living in our lives while we hold that grudge, while we hold that anger, that bitterness of spirit, that, that, uh, that wrong attitude. What's the divine way? When the words come out of our mouth, we pray like Elisha did for his servant around Dothan. Open the servant's eyes so he can see what's up there around the city. All he can see now are the armies surround that, that, that we're in jeopardy with. Show him what's really there. And all of a sudden he saw the angels of God as a mighty army. And he was satisfied everything was going to be all right. What do we need? We need some eyes opened as to what is happening up there. Not down here, not there, but up there. Those words coming out of my mouth are transcribed by whatever means the angels of God have. We have computers and we think they're pretty fast. I think they've got better methods. They are transcribed verbatimly with probably the ver, verbatim with probably the emphasis and the uh, and the expressions and the emotions all put together directly to the captain Satan himself and he throws those words in the face of Jesus Christ and he says there is your Christian there is your gospel there is your salvation look at that Christian right now your way doesn't work he's my servant not your servant Watch him. Just watch him. Let's just watch the evidence. Is that Christ or is that Satan working in him right now? And when we realize that's what's happening every time we sin, my friends, doesn't matter what sin we commit, when we know what is wrong and we willfully do the wrong thing, Satan throws that in the face of Jesus Christ as evidence that God's way doesn't work and it's a fraud. And God is helpless. His grace is powerless. And we say, what have I done? I have just extended the great controversy. I have just allowed Satan a little more breathing room on this planet. I have given Satan more arguing time with God. Because right now I'm unsealable. 
So God is going to wait and He's going to say, I love my children. Hold the winds of strife until they are ready to be sealed. And my children aren't there. Look at Him right now. It wouldn't be helpful to Him or to us to seal Him now. And so that means Satan has more time running on this planet. And that's what I see when those words come out of my mouth. I have given Satan more time to run this planet and kill babies in Africa and abuse children in their own parents' homes and to be destructive everywhere he chooses. I have given Satan the right to do that by my choice to say, God, I don't like your way. I'm not going to turn the other cheek. That's too hard. It's unfair. Satan, you're right, and God is wrong. That's what happens when words come out of our mouth that are not divine sanctified, holy words. And I realize that. My conscience is alive. I see what is happening up there in the courts of heaven. And I say, Lord, my hand slipped. It was pulling out of your hand. Will you take it back? And you know what God says? He doesn't say, well, I'm going to look at you for a while. I don't know if you really mean that. Uh, I'll give you a, a day and see if you mean it. No, God doesn't operate that way. The prodigal son and the father tell us that story. Where did the, the prodigal son get met by the father? A long way down the road. As soon as he saw him coming back, he ran out to greet him, take him home. And so at the moment I say, Lord, I'm placing my hand back in your hand, he takes it back. He takes it back. He is the most forgiving, loving, unconditional person that there is in the universe. He takes us back. He doesn't say, I'll put you on probation for a little while. He takes us back. And our hand is right back in his hand. No, we do not lose our salvation if we do that. If the hand slips and we make a mistake and we say, Lord, take it back, we do not lose our standing of salvation we do not come under condemnation because we are immediately repentant for our sin. That's the key. Immediately repentant. Not a day later. Not a month later. But right now, I have dishonored you, Lord. I'm sorry. And you say to the person that has wronged you and should say they're sorry first. But you say to that person, even though I don't believe what you said was right, what I said was very wrong, and I'm sorry for saying it. You can be honest. You can tell them that you don't believe what they said was proper. But say it like Christ would say it, not like Satan would say it. I was wrong in what I said to you. Repentance, immediate repentance, keeps the hand in the hand of Jesus Christ, and you don't lose your salvation. This is not, as some people characterize it, yo-yo religion. In Christ now, in and out, in and out. No, it is not that. But when you take that hand and you clench it behind your back and you say, I won't until, or I'm going to insist, or whatever you say, yeah, you lose your relationship with Christ and you walk out of a saving relationship and you have to ask the Holy Spirit to forgive you and accept you all over again to find that relationship. Separation is real. And the first gospel, the evangelical gospel, denies that you separate yourself from Christ while sinning. To put it very simply now, we're getting down to really bottom line stuff. One gospel teaches that you can be saved while sinning as long as you believe in Jesus. One gospel teaches that when you believe in Jesus, he frees you from sin. There's the difference between the two gospels. Saved while sinning, 
or saved from sinning. Two different gospels, two different ways of salvation, couched in very interesting words, just fruit or cause. Just the word fruit makes all that difference. If you believe that sanctification is a fruit, you believe you can be saved while sinning. And I'm sure you've heard that quite a bit. Sanctification is a fruit of justification. Now, I will agree that obedience is a fruit of justification, sanctification. But sanctification is not a fruit of justification. It is a cause of salvation, not a fruit of salvation. Because sanctification is God's work. It is God's work, 100%. Now, I'm going to deal with something else right here. I came across this from... Uh, Elder Spangler, who was a editor of Ministry Magazine for many, many years. And he talked about justification being a covering umbrella over a person's entire life. And that is becoming a very, very popular thing to say. Once we've been justified, once we've been legally accepted by Christ, it is an umbrella for past sins, present sins, and future sins. I've even heard it expressed this way. How will the people of God be able to survive after the close of probation when obviously they're going to slip a little bit? You know, fallen nature is just that way. They'll make a mistake. They'll sin somehow after the close of probation. Well, it's because they have the covering, of umbrella, the covering umbrella of justification. It covers their future sins. And therefore, even after Jesus steps out of the most holy place, after he steps out of the sanctuary and is no longer giving immediate forgiveness for immediate sin, we still have the covering of the umbrella of justification that began with our new birth that covers us all the way to the second coming of Christ. So even if we lose our temper after the close of probation, we are still covered by justification. Okay? That's the phrasing of this. Now, Elder Spangler dealt with it in this way, and I thought it was very interesting. He said, never preach justification in such a way as to downgrade sanctification. Justification and sanctification are inseparable in the Christian experience. Some time ago, I heard of a minister who placed an extreme emphasis on justification as the absolute and only factor in one's acceptance with God. The practical result of his preaching was the idea that works had nothing to do with one's salvation. He shocked his congregation with the assertion that since he was a Christian, saved solely by the doing and dying of Jesus Christ, he would still inherit the kingdom even if in a moment of weakness he slipped into the sin of adultery and happened to die during the adulterous act. A strange illustration indeed coming from the lips of a minister. Did David, with his double sin of murder and adultery, ever intimate that during his flagrant departure from obedience he had the assurance of God's acceptance? Were King David to enter one of our pulpits today and face the question, David, did you feel that you were still accepted of God during the time you weakened and committed adultery with Bathsheba, then tried to cover up by ordering the murder of Uriah, her husband? And had you died during this incident, do you believe you would have been saved? Can we imagine him answering yes? Ellen White relates that when the prophet's finger of accusation was pointed at him, that's Nathan, David trembled, lest guilty and unforgiven he should be cut down by the swift judgment of God. 
guilty and unforgiven. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 722. David's transgression, she says, changed his relation to God. David's transgression changed his relation to God. He had been a man after God's own heart. Now he was not. Now he was guilty and he was unforgiven. And by the way, do you remember how long this condition lasted between the time of his adultery and Nathan's coming to him and challenging him with that parable? We believe it was at least a full year that David continued in his state of saying, I am the king. Kings do this all the time. I am only a human being. I slipped and then I took care of it so nobody will know. And I'm still the king of Israel, the chosen one of God. That's what he said for the whole year. He went to the temple. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he offered sacrifices. I'm sure he said, I'm still God's chosen servant. I'm sure he said all those things to fool himself into a false assurance of salvation, as countless Christians are doing today. And only when by the power of the Holy Spirit and Nathan speaking directly to his conscience did he realize and admit that he was guilty and unforgiven during that whole period of his life. And you know what I think? I think Satan would have loved to take David's life during that period, don't you think? I think that Satan would have lured David out into a battle situation, if he could have, where David would have been at the forefront of the army like he put Uriah. And David could have been cut down because David, the man after God's own heart, would have then, then been lost forever. I believe that Satan tried harder. I don't have any evidence for this. I'm just guessing at Satan's mind. I believe Satan tried harder to kill David at that point than at any other time in his life. And you know what? God didn't let that happen. I believe God took more pains to keep David alive during his period of rebellion than even when he was fleeing from Saul because God knew that David was in jeopardy of losing eternal life. And he knew there was still hope for this man because he really was a man after God's own heart and he wanted to do right and he had a bad misdeed. He slipped. It wasn't in total rebellion against God. He wasn't defying God. He just slipped. And he let go of the hand of God for a while. And God knows that. He knows the difference between outright rebellion that cannot be changed and a slip by an honest person. Judas did one, David did the other, right? And God worked with Judas until the very last moment. And finally God had to say, there is no hope. He, I will allow Satan to kill him by even taking his own life. And God did not allow that to happen for David. And he won't allow it to happen for us. As long as there is hope, as long as there is a desire to serve God, a slip does not give Satan the right to take our life. And so what I'm saying to you is, simple, is simply this. The illustration that is used that what if I sin and I die in the act of my sin, will I be saved or lost, is one of those marvelous hypothetical situations which is not determined, which is not offered just for that situation, but to determine everything else in my life. Well, if I can die and be saved while sinning, 
then I can still be sinning now and I'm still okay. That's where that is going. And that's where all of these uh, the things that I read come from. The disciples were saved while following Jesus. Falling into sin does not cause us to be lost. And all of these statements come from that idea. Well, if God can save a person who slipped and didn't have a chance to repent, then he can save me while I'm still not repenting and while I'm cherishing sin. The worst thing to do in the world is to take a hypothetical situation that is not a real situation and then to form a whole theology based on that. That's just bad way to do uh, scripture study. So I'm going to suggest that the answer to this question is David was lost. David had separated himself from God and he would continue to be separated from God until he repented. And then he would again be a man after God's own heart. It's not complicated. It is simply a statement that while you're sinning, you're on your own, brother. And all God can do for you is keep you alive until you repent. But you're in serious danger. You're in serious danger while cherishing sin. And the key word is cherishing. Cherishing. Holding on to. Refusing to repent. While cherishing sin, there is no salvation. And that cuts straight across all of this. And all that determined by one little word, fruit or cause. If sanctification of fruit, then you're saved in sin. If it's a cause, you cannot be saved in sin. Now I'm going to finish up by going outside of Seventh-day Adventism. A young German theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer was murdered by the Nazis in the late days of the Second World War. Now, the thing about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran theologian, is that he could have opted out of Nazi Germany easily. The intellectuals were doing that. They were coming to America. They were going anywhere. They knew what was happening to that country. And though he could have had a very safe, comfortable professorship at any one of our American universities or seminaries, Bonhoeffer instead chose to remain because his people had to remain in his congregation. And so he stayed. And he lost his life fighting a, regi a regime which he viewed as antithetical to every principle of the cause of Jesus Christ. He was arrested for his anti-Nazi activity. And he was put in prison, a Gestapo prison, for two years. And he was hung by his neck in early April 1945, one week before the Allies liberated that camp. Yeah. Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And here is what someone said about that. He captured the essence of Christian discipleship, which is death to self and complete surrender in faith and obedience to the will of God. Cheap grace, he wrote, is grace without discipleship. In contrast, costly grace is the only grace that saves. True discipleship is the experience of costly grace. Without it, there is no Christ, no cross, no death. And I'm going to conclude by sharing some of his words in his own language from this book, The Cost of Discipleship. Remembering again, no Ellen White. No Seventh-day Adventist ideas. Only this book and the Holy Spirit. That's enough. It's always enough. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. The only man who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone 
is the man who has left all to follow Christ. Such a man knows that the call to discipleship is a gift of grace and that the call is inseparable from the grace. Do we also realize that this cheap grace has turned back upon us like a boomerang? The price we are having to pay today in the shape of the collapse of the organized church is only the inevitable consequence of our policy of making grace available to all at too low a cost. This cheap grace has been no less disastrous to our own spiritual lives. Instead of opening up the way to Christ, it has closed it. Instead of calling us to follow Christ, it has hardened us in our disobedience. Perhaps we had once heard the gracious call to follow Him and had, this, and had at this command even taken the first steps along the path of discipleship in the discipline of obedience, only to find ourselves confronted by the word of cheap grace. Was that not merciless and hard? The only effect that such a word could have on us was to bar our way to progress and seduce us to the mediocre level of the world, quenching the joy of discipleship by telling us that we were following a way of our own choosing, that we were spending our strength and disciplining ourselves in vain, all of which was not merely useless but extremely dangerous. After all, we were told our salvation had already been accomplished by the grace of God. The smoking flax was mercilessly extinguished. It was unkind to speak to men like this, for such a cheap offer could only leave them bewildered and tempt them from the way to which they had been called by Christ. Having laid hold on cheap grace, they were barred forever from the knowledge of costly grace. Oh, that's what's happening today. Throughout the Christian world, to convince a person who believes he or she is saved by the, justifying, by the justifying grace of Christ, by legal justification alone, and asking that person to, say, to, to examine the fact that he may not be saved is harder than bringing a person out of abject slavery into Christianity. And it is in Adventism too, by the way. Many Adventists are buying into this. And it is hard to talk to them anymore because they are happy just the way they are. Deceived and weakened, men felt that they were strong now that they were in possession of this cheap grace, whereas they had in fact lost the power to live the life of discipleship and obedience. And listen now, the word of cheap grace has been the ruin of more Christians than any commandment of works. Yeah, we've had legalism in the Seventh-day Adventist church. We've had rigidity. It's driven some of our young people away from Jesus Christ. Hardline, do this or that, and, you, and, and it's the only way you're going to do it. Yes, legalism has hurt us badly. And to counteract that legalism, that hardline, do-it-or-else ideas, we have swung clear over to Jesus has done it all for you. He loves you just the way you are. Don't worry about it. You will not be left out of heaven by your sins. He overlooks those things. Cheap grace has been the ruin of more Christians than any commandment of works. Now, you're going to have to follow this carefully. This is a little involved, but stretch your minds. Think carefully with me. The idea of a situation in which faith is possible is only a way of stating the facts of a case in which the following two propositions hold good and are equally true. Only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient is believes it is quite unbiblical to hold the first proposition without the second we think we understand when we hear that obedience is possible only when there is faith 
Does not obedience follow faith as good fruit grows on a good tree? First faith, then obedience. If we make a chronological distinction between faith and obedience and make obedience subsequent to faith, we believe in Jesus, we're saved, and then obedience will follow. If we make obedience subsequent to faith, we are divorcing the one from the other. And then we get the practical question, when must obedience begin? Because that's the practical reality. I've been saved. I believe in Jesus Christ. Obedience will come tomorrow, next week, when I retire, whatever. Obedience remains separated from faith. From the, point, from the point of view of justification, it might be necessary to separate faith and obedience. But we must never lose sight of their essential unity. For faith is only real when there is obedience, never without it. And faith only becomes faith in the act of obedience. Ah, this is pretty profound stuff. And the whole Christian world doesn't understand this at all. And Adventists are way behind too. Since then, we cannot adequately speak of obedience as the consequence of faith. And since we must never forget the indissoluble unity of the two, we must place the one proposition that only he who believes is obedient alongside the other, that only he who is obedient believes. In the one case, now listen, faith is the condition of obedience, and in the other, obedience the condition of faith. Without obedience, no faith. You can say all the words you want to say. But if there isn't an obedient spirit in your heart, there is no faith and therefore no righteousness and no salvation. And a lot of people would just say immediately, blatant legalism, righteousness by works. The reference is in his book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship. It goes pretty well all through the book. In this, uh, I'm reading from pages like 158 and, uh, and 85, all through that general area. Author is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In the end, the first step of obedience proves to be an act of faith in the word of Christ. But we should completely misunderstand the nature of grace if we were to suppose that there was no need to take the first step, obedience, because faith was already there. Against that, we must boldly assert that the step of obedience must be taken before faith can be possible. Unless he obeys, a man cannot believe. You have just heard Paul speaking through Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That is Paul's message. It is not the evangelical message that so many have made it out to be, which is a distortion of Luther and Calvin. It is not what they taught either. But this evangelical gospel of legal justification alone has been a distortion of post-Lutheran scholastic orthodoxy. That's a handful it is not Luther. It is not Reformation. It's what happened down the line a hundred years later. And we have bought into it in the Baptist churches, in the evangelical churches, and now largely in the Seventh-day Adventist remnant church. And we have forgotten that obedience and faith are the same word. The same word. 
And is Sabbath keeping then a requirement for salvation? If we understand the Sabbath, are convicted of its importance? Yes, there is no faith without Sabbath keeping. If we are convicted of the importance of returning tithe, can there be a relationship with God while we withhold tithe? There is no faith where there is no obedience. Satan has just jumped on that word obedience, hasn't he? Oh, he is delighted to label it every way he can to make Christians as afraid as possible of it. I've even heard the phrase, we should not fight the fight of sin, we should fight the fight of faith. They are one and the same fight, my friends. One and the same fight. When we fight against the sins that are controlling our lives, we are saying, Lord, I don't have the power. I'm asking you to move in in your power because I believe in you. And that's the fight of faith all at the same time. To divorce behavior from faith is to do what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said and cause the loss of more Christians than any commandment of works. For Dietrich Bonhoeffer, cheap grace simply meant faith without obedience. That's cheap grace. Saying you believe without an obedient spirit. And I believe that that is what justification and sanctification can teach us. That there is a legal aspect. That there is an experiential aspect to both of them. And unless we are experiencing both of those and they are necessary causes of our salvation because they are done by Jesus Christ, we will never, never, never have the joy and the peace that Christ offers us. Because Romans 7, my friends, as much as we would like to say that's the way it is, is not a happy chapter. That's not a fun chapter to read. And I don't think, if it refers to Paul himself, he was a happy man while doing it. Oh, wretched man that I am, he said, who shall deliver me from this body of death? That's not a happy experience. And that's not what Christianity should be all about. So I think, my friends, that we have got some serious reevaluation to do as we listen to speakers. I know good and well that you will go away from here and within the next week, next month, next few months, you will hear someone say exactly the opposite to what I'm telling you. You will hear it on a cassette tape. You will hear it in a sermon. You will hear it in a camp meeting. You will read it in a book. It's all over the place in Adventism. And you will hear exactly the opposite of what I'm saying to you. And you've got some serious evaluating to do. Am I giving you a load of garbage or am I telling you the truth? That's what it boils down to. And what is the other person telling you? I am suggesting to you that we have, at this point in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, direct and overt contradictions between plain statements in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and what our best authorities are telling us. That's what I'm saying. And I'm saying you're going to have to make a decision as you read and hear those authorities that you have been blessed by in the past. And it is not just those that you're going to categorize out there with words that I don't use very often, but I think we understand what we mean, liberal and conservative. It is not just the liberal crowd out there that is going to destroy all our standards and we can say, you know, that they're, they're the enemies and they're the wrong ones and they're teaching this gospel, this false gospel. I am hearing the evangelical gospels from the most conservative Bible spirit of prophecy believing Adventists right now in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They're talking to our young people. 
They are talking to our camp meetings. They are well accepted. I don't get that many invitations to camp meetings. My message is very politically unacceptable right now in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And others that teach exactly the opposite, the other view, are well accepted in our presentations and they, you are going to hear them often and loudly proclaiming another gospel. And you've got some serious evaluating to do. Because not, this is not just a matter of who's telling the truth on Daniel 11. That's a fun chapter to study. All these things happening and no explanation in the spirit of prophecy and which is the glorious land and which is the ships of this, that, and the other. Oh, it's fun to study. And it has some interesting things that we can all study. But you know what? This is not like that. We can be dead wrong on Daniel 11. Absolutely 100% wrong and still walk into heaven. <laughs> but we can't be dead wrong on the gospel. You can't be dead wrong on your relationship with Christ today. Can you be saved in sin or, can you, or are you to be saved from sin? You will not walk into heaven with a false gospel. That's what I'm saying. And you have to make that decision for yourself too. These are hard times to be a Seventh-day Adventist, my friends. These are not easy times. The years of Desmond Ford are over. But Desmond Ford is very alive in the Seventh-day Adventist church. His theology is front and center mainstream. I've read you statements from very authoritative publications and individuals which are pure Desmond Ford. The problem is we never dealt with his gospel. All we dealt with was his understanding of judgment in 1844. We didn't deal with his gospel. What is sin? What nature did Christ have? What is justification? Is perfection possible? We didn't touch it. You know what happens when we don't touch things? They go underground. You know, when Desmond Ford was disqualified from being a teacher, all the ones at PUC that urged him, say it, Des, say it. Yeah, get out there and say it. We'll back you up. All of those nice little people went back into the shadows when Des Ford was no longer allowed to preach and teach. Not a word, not a peep. For several years, out of the ones who were saying, say it, Des, say it. They went back underground. And it stayed underground for about 10 years. Not much was said. And all of a sudden it began to come out. Because when it is not addressed, error always comes back to knock us down again. And now we're coming back into the full-blown Desmond Ford evangelical gospel era of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And we're in the middle of it. And what I'm saying today is no longer mainstream Adventism. I wish I could say it was. What I'm telling you today is minority Adventism. Mainstream Adventism has shifted. And it has accepted. I don't know what Des Ford is doing these days. He's retired and back in Australia. I have had no contact with him since he left PUC. But I can only imagine he kind of folding his arms and saying, I won. I won. They turned me away. They kicked me out. But I won. My friends, you and I have to make that decision individually. I can't make it for you. I can't tell you what to believe because I have no authority. Please understand that. It's got to come from this. It's got to come from your own study of the Word of God. You've got to be able to dig deeper than you've ever dug before to figure this out for yourself.
That's what I had to do when Desmond came to our campus in 1977, 1978, and 1979. And I thought I knew all about righteousness by faith. And then we had these great discussions. And I said to myself, I didn't know anything. At the end of that little discussion period between Desmond Ford and Irwin Gain on the campus of Pacific Union College in the religion department, uh, it lasted for about three or four months discussing righteousness by faith, justification and sanctification. All of us in the religion department were asked to prepare a paper about what we believed based on what the discussions had been. I couldn't even put my pen to paper. I had no idea what to write. I had no idea who was right, who was wrong, what was true and what was false. And I'd been a minister by this time for 15 years. I had been baptizing people. I had been teaching. I had been pastoring. And I couldn't write down how a person is saved after I finished with that conversation. So if you're feeling that way right now, don't feel too bad. This is complicated stuff. I know it is. Satan's counterfeits are very real and they're tough to unravel. But I'm asking you to do some digging. The only reason I'm standing before you today is because after that point, I had to dig right down to the roots and say, what is it that I am saved or lost by? Let's forget about Daniel 11 for a while. We'll get back to that later. Right now, we'll just talk about, am I saved today? And how do I know that? And I had to go back and dig, and you're going to have to do the same thing. Because right now, we're back in the middle of exactly that same controversy. Now it's worldwide in the Adventist church, not just limited to Pacific Union College. Now it's worldwide. And so, my friends, study, pray like you've never prayed before, ask for the Holy Spirit to guide you, and you will find the right way. You will. If you're studying the Bible and the spirit of prophecy faithfully, even if you can't figure out all of these ins and outs, and even if fruit and cause leave you, leave you a little bleary, if you're studying the spirit of prophecy, if you're studying the genuine, you'll be able to know that there's something not quite right there, even if you can't put your finger right on it. Study the genuine, and the false will look not so good. There is a way out of this dilemma. There is a solution. All right, one last statement from the spirit of prophecy, and then we'll open it up. Testimonies, volume 5, page 514. It is for you to yield up your will to the will of Jesus Christ, and as you do this, God will immediately take possession and work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. Your whole nature will then be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ. Your whole nature. And even your thoughts will be subject to Him. Wow, that's great, isn't it? When the thoughts are in obedience, you cannot control, listen carefully, you cannot control your impulses, your emotions as you may desire. Listen, impulses and emotions and feelings are a product of our fallen nature and they pull us and they twist us and they kick us around all the time. But you can control the will and you can make an entire change in your life. By yielding up your will to Christ, your life will be hid with Christ in God and allied to the power which is above all principalities and powers. There's God's promise. You've got nothing. You've got Testimonies, Volume 5, 514. You've got nothing. You've got no abilities. You've got no emotions that you can trust. But you've got a will that can choose. 
You can make a choice. I surrender these emotions. I surrender my nature. I give it to you. I know there are some things I should not be doing. Lord, make me willing to be willing. And he will answer that prayer too. I know by experience. I had to pray that a lot. Lord, make me willing to be willing. And I guarantee he answers a prayer like that. This is not one of the if conditions. Well, you know, if it's his will. No, that's his will. That's guaranteed. If you ask, he will make you willing. And then he will enable you to carry out what your choices are. God's way works. Let's not trade it in for a bowl of porridge. We have a birthright. Let's have that birthright and live it every day of our lives. I'm going to ask us to kneel as we close this meeting in prayer. Father, one more time we come to you on this holy Sabbath day as we have struggled to understand what is going on about how the way of salvation is expressed in sermons and presentations. And Lord, it is difficult. It is difficult to sort it out, truth from error, right from wrong. So Lord, we're praying for your Holy Spirit to just come into our lives and give us the gift of discernment and willingness to follow your way. Lord, if there are sins that we are holding on to in our life that we know are wrong and will disqualify us from a relationship with you, Lord, may we lay those sins on the altar right now. I pray that if there is a holding back to a precious or darling sin right now, that you will allow each individual to make that choice. I will give that sin to you, Jesus Christ. I will put it on the altar even though I don't know how I can live without it. Lord, take us. Take us as we are, weak, inefficient, sinning, and save us. Justify us. Give us a new heart. Sanctify us. Grow obedience in us. And enable us to be that generation that will be able to walk into the kingdom that you have prepared and not be sinning anymore. We're done with rebellion. We would rather die than sin ever again. And Satan will view these sinners as impregnable fortresses as the greatest mystery he has ever come up against on this earth. Lord, make us that people. Prepare a people for your seal so that your name will be vindicated and Satan's ruling time on this planet will be ended quickly. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.